please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. And this morning we are uh, finishing chapter one of First Timothy. And we'll do so by looking at an aspect of the church that can often be oftentimes be something that we don't like to talk about. Very often when someone is uh, within when when someone within the body falls into unrepentant sin, the topic of discipline does not make itself known from the pulpit. We like to be a private people, and we like to keep disciplinary matters private as well. And this can be a good thing during the discipline process in hopes that restoration occurs but it can be it can prove to be detrimental to the flock if it remains in secret well today we're going to look at the office of elder and the and his duties in ensuring the spiritual health of the congregation. In the act of discipline, if the unrepentant sin continues. And so with this in mind, give your attention now to the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us go to Him in prayer. O Lord, this is what could be a difficult word for us. This could be a difficult topic for us to approach. But Lord, Thou hast seen necessary to include it in Thy Word for the instruction of Thy church. So Lord, let us receive this Word with gladness. Let us receive it with thanksgiving. Let us receive it with joy. Because it is Thy Word. And thy word is truth. O Lord, as we take up this difficult topic, we ask that thou wouldst equip us in how to handle 
such matters as thy church. Lord, we ask thy blessing would be upon the minister this day as he brings us this word. Strengthen him, for he is weak. Speak through him as thy mouthpiece, O Lord. Lord, we ask that the man would decrease so that Christ Jesus would be magnified here in this place. Let what is preached this day not be in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but let it be in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. O Lord, feed us this day with thy word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is much to consider when we come to look at this letter and how it is to be applied to the church. This portion today is one of the aspects of this letter that we tend to shy away from. Not because we disagree with it, but because it's such a weighty thing. I wish more pastors were open and honest in discussing the topic of discipline. Not just as a theological topic, but as a practical one. So many people in the church today have either no understanding of this important aspect of the church, or they have a flawed understanding of it that is contrary to what the Word of God actually teaches. If we are to be prepared to live uh, uh, this life as Christ Jesus has called us to live, if we are to be ready to face whatever challenges may come our way, if we are to see the church function according to the precepts of the Lord, then we must have a right understanding, a biblical understanding of such an important topic. There are enemies of Christ who are seeking the destruction of the church through any means necessary. Those enemies are both outside the church as well as inside the church. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are at war. And like any soldier who is all who is uh, off to go fight in a war, we must have our marching orders straightened out and we must know exactly what we're to do. Lest we become just another casualty. So we'll take up this theme this morning and we'll do so by considering three aspects of our passage. First, the charge. Next, the warning. And finally, the example. So first, consider the charge. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. 
Paul begins this brief portion of his letter, uh, of this letter, in, in a very familiar way. He begins uh, by addressing Timothy in the same endearing manner uh, that he did earlier, and it's a reiteration of what he says at the beginning of this letter. Paul is regarded by Timothy as his own son in the faith. We see this in verse 2 of this chapter. Unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And he reiterates this at the beginning of, chapter, uh, of verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. This isn't just a nicety that Paul is tossing out to make Timothy feel good about himself. It's a testimony of the relationship that they had with one another. Paul didn't just know Timothy as a fellow laborer for the Gospel. He had spent years with him on the missionary journeys, discipling and mentoring him. So that when the time came to leave him in Ephesus to lead the church there, Paul had no doubt to the capabilities of this young man. And so this ought to be your apostolic example for discipleship and mentorship within the church. Ladies, your, uh, one of your callings in the Christian life is to teach and instruct younger women in the ways of the faith. Men, one of your callings is to teach and instruct younger men in the ways of the faith. But you also have an additional charge, and that is to assist in raising up and training men for ministry. And one of the tasks of the elders is to equip and train men to be qualified to offices within the church if God so calls them to fill those roles. We all ought to be able to say, just as Paul did of Timothy, that we are raising up sons and daughters in the faith. And this takes commitment. This takes time. This takes sacrifice. But this is our duty before the Lord. And so Paul uses his relationship with Timothy as a ground for the charge which he places upon this young man. And another ground that the apostle uses is that he calls to mind the ordination of Timothy. According to the prophecies which went before thee. And while this is the first mention of these prophecies in this particular letter, it's not the only time that we will see Paul mention the prophecies placed upon Timothy. He'll refer to this again in chapter 4, verse 14, where we read, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. 
Paul is using both his relationship with Timothy as well as his ordination to the office of elder in his plea as a grounds by which Timothy ought to listen to him. Now this may be where some of you uh, mentally check out where you're where you're tempted to just stop listening. You may say, well, I'm not an elder. You may say, I've never been ordained, so this passage isn't for me. Well, I can assure you that this passage is written uh, for everyone in this room. And it is applicable to each and every one of you. You all can benefit from this passage even though you may not all be an elder. But I do believe that this passage is primarily an exhortation to those men who are ordained as shepherds of the sheep. Elders and you men who desire the office of elder when times of trial come, when matters in church seem so great, I want to encourage you to look back upon those times when the Lord has called you to a particular purpose. Even if that particular purpose is just living as a believer. The Lord has called you and He's equipped you. And if you are an officer, then look on your ordination to the office that you hold. It's not merely your accepting of the office or the men laying their hands upon you. It is the Lord Himself who commissioned you to that high and holy calling. Remember that. Our Lord Jesus equipped you with the Spirit in your ordination in order to empower you to face whatever may come in keeping His church. And congregation, those of you who may never become elders, when you see the leaders in the church facing some sort of, uh, of trial or tribulation, when, they, when you see them facing all kinds of heinous sins and, and ugly situations, call upon them to look back at their ordination and to see that it is the Lord who empowers them to this work. I want you to hear this carefully because it's so true. You must edify the elders if they are to shepherd you. They need to be built up by you as the congregation. And so Paul combines his love for Timothy and uh, his ordination by God upon Timothy and he wraps it all up together 
into another ground of appeal. And this is, this is actually the purpose of everything he's about to speak on. That thou by them mightest war a good warfare. This is the charge. That thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. We are fighting a war. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are at war. And those who are on the front lines are your elders. Christ is the King. He is the commander-in-chief of this Christian army. But He has is, he is appointed officers in this army. And those officers are the elders. And so those who inspire to this office must know this. That this office is one of leadership in the midst of war. I spent almost eight years in the army, and I've seen good leaders, and I've seen terrible leaders. I've had officers over me who I knew would lead me into battle, and I had officers over me who I knew would get me killed. So I ask, what kind of leader are you? Are you going to lead the church militant onward toward the end as the church triumphant? Or are you just going to sit back and revel in peacetime as the world around you is being slaughtered by sin? I know this analogy of the Christian life as warfare is not popular. Uh, is not a popular notion of Christianity today. I know that I'm not going to make friends with those who are outside of Christ's church by stating that they are the enemies of God. But this is what the Scriptures are saying about our faith. This is what the Word of God is saying is our commission. We are soldiers. Paul recognized this. Paul understood that this terminology that he was using was tantamount to treason and that he could have been executed for inciting an insurrection with just these words. But that did not stop him. Everything that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time here today will be through the lens of warfare. The purpose of Paul writing this is that Timothy might war a good warfare. And please pay careful attention to the next two verses for they will be the difference between life and death. Elders, this is your tactical manual 
and congregation, these are your orders, so take heed. This charge then leads us to consider the warning. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Once you've been given the charge, once you have your orders in hand, you must get to action. So what are you to do? Verse 19 tells us, holding faith in a good conscience. It sounds so simple. Holding faith in a good conscience. But what does that mean? How do we hold faith? Well, the first thing we need to do in order to understand what it means to hold faith is to define our faith. What is our faith? Friends, it is the Gospel. It is the doctrine which has been entrusted to the church by Jesus Christ Himself. It is that which we confess in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the definition of Chalcedon. It is that biblical teaching summarized in the Westminster Standards. It is that faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is our faith. This is what we hold on to. As the world around you continues to criticize what you believe, you must hold on to it. When the liberals try to infiltrate Christ's church and tell you that these are just metaphorical doctrines, that they aren't to be taken literally, that you're just stuck in your old ways and you need to get with the times. Friends, you must hold on to your faith. And hold on to that faith with a good conscience. How do we know our conscience is good? Can you rely solely on what your heart tells you is right? Well, if that's your standard, then your conscience is but a leaf blown about in the winds of the culture. The way you know that you're holding your faith with a good conscience is that your faith is in conformity to the Word of God. You must be able to say as Martin Luther did before the Diet of Worms when he was called to recant of his teachings on Scripture, he said, unless I am convinced by Scripture or sound reason, I cannot recant My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. But how does this pertain to warfare? Holding faith and a good conscience is your standard operating procedure. This is the basic 
foundation of operation that if you forget it, then you cannot effectively fight in this war. Part of the job in shepherding the flock as an elder in Christ's church is to ensure that your people are holding faith in a good conscience. And this can play out in a variety of ways, but the biggest one is you must be involved in their lives. You must take time to be with someone, encouraging and mentoring to ensure that their faith is true and their conscience is right. Brothers and sisters, our duty is to edify one another. We are a single unit and we must work together in building up one another's faith. This is why Bible study and Sabbath school and discipleship and catechesis are so important to the Christian life. You must have this basic truth solidified in your lives if you are to effectively war a good warfare. But this isn't always what actually plays out, is it? Not everyone who is part of the body holds faith and a good conscience. Just as in warfare, there are times soldiers forget their mission or the plans of operations. So Paul goes on to warn us of this very real threat, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. This is the opposite of holding faith and a good conscience. This is where things get serious. Brothers and sisters, and, and especially elders, leaders in the church, if we fail to hold one another accountable to our faith, and the truths of the Gospel, we run the risk of seeing someone make shipwreck of the faith. This occurs when the enemy infiltrates our ranks and leads us into temptation. This is where we see brothers and sisters falling into sin and it should shake us to our very core. This is where our responsibility for holding one another accountable is so important. This is the point where matters become life and death. If we are so blinded to sin or so isolated from one another that we fail to see sin rearing its ugly head, then we fail in battling it at its root. A person who is beholden to sin and left unchecked will poison the body and severely damage the effectiveness of our army. In the army, we had a policy called see something, say something. Meaning that if something didn't seem quite right, we were to report it in order for it to be investigated. 
we as believers need to have the same kind of policy with one another. If we see something that looks wrong, even if we're not sure that it's sin, we have an obligation to talk to that person. And even more so, if we see something that is clearly sin. Christ gave us instructions on in how to do this in Matthew 18. Moreover, thy brother, if thy brother tr- shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an even man and a publican. Go to the person privately first. Don't spread rumors. Don't gossip about the situation. Don't mention it online while while not naming names on your Facebook page. Talk to the person. And if that doesn't work, then take two or, uh, one or two witnesses, people who've experienced this person's sins for themselves. And if that doesn't work, then the elders are to examine the matter and bring forth formal discipline. But this is for private sin. If the sin is a public sin, if it's, if it's well known, then the elders have a duty to immediately begin disciplinary procedures. Having an enemy within the camp can prove fatal in our war against the darkness of this present age. Inaction in this is why so many churches have now apostatized and cannot be rightly called churches of Christ, but instead synagogues of Satan. Elders, you must keep your head on a swivel and keep guard against unchecked sin in the body. This is one of the highest forms of shepherding the flock. Chasing away the wolves. Ezekiel 33.6 says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. The Lord holds His watchmen accountable for the blood shed on their watch. And you must remember that the purpose of discipline is for repentance and for restoration. Remember, these are souls, not chess pieces.
we elders will stand before Almighty God one day and we will give an account for how we shepherded the flock that the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted to our care. So this must be done with care. But what happens if repentance does not take place and restoration cannot be achieved? Well, we've seen the charge and the warning. Let us now turn our attention to consider the example. Paul gives us two examples of this very thing happening. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is one of the most difficult responsibilities of an elder. In Old Testament Israel, if one were found to be a covenant breaker and repentance was not found, then they were to be cut off, excommunicated from the people of God. And in this, nothing has changed in the New Testament church. If one is found to be unrepentant in their sins, they are to be cut off and excommunicated from the church. Christ in Matthew 18 says it very clearly. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. They are to be treated as sinners, unbelievers, as heathens. Let that sink in. If someone is cut off through excommunication, they are not welcome in membership in Christ's church. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath Christ with Belial or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel brothers and sisters at this point that unrepentant sinner is to be considered our enemy They're no longer members of the visible church. They're no longer partakers of the blessings of the Spirit. They are no longer partakers of the covenantal meal, lest they heap damnation upon their heads. They are to be treated as just another lost person who desperately needs Christ. And so what do you do with unbelievers? You share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You show them their transgression of the law of God. And you call them to repentance and pray that the Spirit of the Lord moves in a mighty way and brings them unto Himself. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a war against Satan or against his followers or against the idolaters of this world worshiping their false gods. 
No, this is a very this is a war for the very souls of those who are sitting next to you. It's all of our duty to war a good warfare in order to preserve the purity and the peace of Christ's church. We cannot sit idly as sin infests the flock. The duty of elders in the church is to be sword bearers. And this task is not a light one. It must be done with great solemnity and care for the sheep but it's also one which must not be neglected for the very life of the congregation hinges upon it. But this is not where it ends. The purpose of church discipline is not excommunication. The purpose is restoration. Paul says the reason that he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander unto Satan is that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now this may seem like some sort of contradiction that somehow Satan would teach these men not to blaspheme. We would think that being under Satan would teach someone to blaspheme all the more because Satan is the father of lies and he can do nothing else. But that's not what this is saying. This isn't saying that under Satan's tutelage these men would learn not to blaspheme. They were delivered over unto Satan meaning that they've been cast out of the dominion of Christ, which is the church. And they've been released into the dominion of Satan, which is the world. The protections and the blessings that they've once experienced have been stripped away from them. And so this extreme measure taken against them is used by the Spirit in order to teach them the error of their ways and to bring them to repentance. This ought to be our prayer whenever we hear of a fallen brother or sister. Our actions ought to be with the express intent to share the gospel with them in hopes that restoration that that repentance and restoration will be exhibited and while this is our hope it may not happen so do not be encouraged and do not ever quit reaching out until that person is lying in the ground it is not too late for the spirit to work in them And let them in their sin, in their discipline, in their excommunication stand as an example to everyone else of what happens if the blood of Christ is trampled underfoot. This is why discipline should not be kept secret. When someone is excommunicated, it must be announced to the people. 
It's a warning sign to anyone. It's a warning sign to anyone who hears it. It's a warning sign to everyone in the congregation. It's a public display of the church's commitment to the honor given to the commandments of the Lord. So it must be done publicly. Friends, I know this has been a tough tough message. But I know it's one we all need to hear. This is one area in which we cannot afford to be soft or compromising. But let me give you a word of encouragement. When you're there waging war in this Christian life, Know that the Lord of glory, the high King of heaven, the Prince of peace is there with you and He has promised you victory. Hear the words of encouragement from Deuteronomy chapter 20. Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. Let that be a comfort to us all. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do find comfort in the fact that we are not called to war this warfare on our own. But that we have been given the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us. That we have Christ Jesus as our Commander-in-Chief. And we have the Lord of all creation on our side. If Jehovah is for us, who can be against us? O Lord, we ask that Thou wouldst cause us to war a good warfare here in this place. That we wouldn't become obsessed with this made-up culture war that other churches are getting uh, ensnared by. But that we would war a good warfare. A warfare against the enemy, against Satan. That we would war a good warfare against the sins and the heart of the people here and in the hearts of those around us. Oh Lord, let that be our aim. That those who belong unto Thee would be strengthened in their faith, holding faith in a good conscience. And that those who do not belong unto Thee would hear the Gospel proclaimed, that they would repent and turn unto Thee. O Lord, protect us from falling. 
Protect us from making shipwreck of our faith. And Lord, equip thy church to handle these matters according to thy will. O Lord, continue to encourage us. Continue to bless us. Be with us for the remainder of our time here this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.